everyone. Invite you back into your seats as we begin our teaching time. We are in the book of James in a series called Mirror, Mirror. And James has five chapters. We have entered the fifth chapter. And so this is the second to the last message in our series. Before I begin teaching, though, I'm going to invite up Katie Kwan, and she's going to read our text this morning from chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. Seven to eleven. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who persevered. You have heard Job's perseverance, and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Thanks, Katie. When I was 15, I spent a good amount of my summer playing baseball. That's what you do when you grow up in the States. You play baseball in the summertime. And so from time to time, uh, I would... I would go, I'd catch a ride or I'd get a ride home from one of my friends who was on the team. I had a number of close friends that were on the baseball team with me. And so I remember, I remember just on, on one hot summer afternoon, I don't remember exactly what had happened with the arrangements, but I was going to go home with my friend's parents and, uh, and his parents, my friend Ryan, his parents had decided that uh, we'd all go out to eat on the way home, so we were going to go to a restaurant. And so I remember uh, having the practice, loading up all my baseball gear, putting it into the trunk of my friend's car, and then hopping into the back seat. And we weren't on the road for very long when my friend's mom turned around in the seat, and she looked back at us, and she said, are you guys hungry? And my friend Ryan, before I could even say anything, he says, I'm not really hungry, but I'm really thirsty. And right away, his mother said, well, you're just going to have to wait. And I remember all of us just all at once, we just started laughing because we were like, what in the world? Why'd you ask that question if you were just going to say you're going to have to wait? It was just one of the weirdest things. And since then, my buddy and I, whenever we talk about anything having to do with anticipating something or uh, being impatient about something, we'll just snap back at each other and say, well, you're just going to have to wait. (laughs) And it feels like a good amount of our world is like that. There's kind of this assumption that we anticipate things to happen. And then at the same time, there's this, this balance with being too impatient. We live in that, in that odd sort of balance between the two. Life is filled with anticipation, and it's also filled with waiting. It can feel like a good amount of our life is just spent waiting for things. We wait for the next meal, the next task, the next visit, the next day. We might be looking forward to it. We might be dreading it. Either way, we're left waiting for it. And there are times when we can speed up the waiting process, right? Or we can avoid a waiting process. We can choose to delay something. We can choose to avoid something. But there's other times when we can't do anything but sit there and wait. To grin and bear it, as the old saying goes. And how we choose to wait is the subject of a word that we're all familiar with, patience. 
or impatience, depending on how you choose to respond. Now, from what I can tell, patience is the ability to control yourself while you wait. That's how I would define the word. Most of us would define this type of self-control as resisting the urge to complain or to become angry. But I suppose there's lots of different ways we resist that feeling that comes up when we feel like something is taking too long. Patience relates to our wait for anything, regardless of how big or how small that thing is. It doesn't matter about the significance. But when we're talking about something that is much more significant or much more troubling, we use a different word. We use the word perseverance. Perseverance is used to describe steady persistence, especially when the situation is difficult. And if we wanted to use a more traditional word, more classic word, we'd use the word long-suffering. Don't you love that compound word? Who doesn't want to do some long-suffering today? Long-suffering is pretty much related to perseverance. It's a combination of patience, and then there's that endurance part. There's that steadfastness. It relates to the idea of continuing on the road ahead, even though the road is very, very difficult. Many people claim that patience is a virtue. That is kind of a modern proverb in our world. Oh, patience, it's a virtue. It dates back to the fifth century, even though to me it feels very, very familiar. It's one of the first things that pops into my head when I think about waiting. Oh, Keith, you should be patient because patience is a virtue. But when you think about it, this saying has less to do with describing patience and more to do with describing the people who demonstrate patience. Of course, not everyone would agree that patience is a virtue. There's plenty of people who feel that waiting for anything is just a huge annoyance, and to think that it does us no good whatsoever. These are the people who have different sort of proverbs when it comes to waiting. Things like, whoever said patience was a virtue never experienced instant gratification. Or patience is a minor form of despair, disguised as a virtue. Or one of my favorites is, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. But for as difficult as it is to be patient, there are times when all of us are willing to wait. I don't know too many people who love the waiting process, but when you think about it, each and every one of us purposely put ourselves in position to wait for things. And the reason why we do this is because all of us feel that some things are worth waiting for. And so we put ourselves in that position. Concert tickets, adopting a child, knee surgery. Remember the dial-up internet connection? That was not worth it. In 2001, when the terrorist attacks happened in New York City, I was a student here in Langley. And I had a couple of classmates who decided not that long afterwards, I don't remember if it was a few weeks or a month or two, but they were from Oregon and they decided that they wanted to go home and spend the weekend with their family. And so they went to the border lineup on a Friday and they waited. They waited for over five hours to cross the border and then it would have been another six, seven hours to drive to Oregon and then they came back, I don't know, probably a few hours after that. To them, it was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. See, we're always weighing the cost of whether or not something is worth the wait. 
We always balance that tension. This is why some people will spend the night outside in a tent to buy something, and other people will avoid the mall for the last two months of the year. I think all of you know which one I am when it comes <laughs> to that camp. So I'm convinced that the biggest challenge we have with waiting has less to do with the actual waiting and more to do with whether or not we believe the wait is worth it. If we don't feel the wait is worth it, we do something different. We do a U-turn. Just like I saw several people do driving south on 200th Street earlier this week with that big construction mess. But what do we do when we think that the wait is worth it, but it just takes a really really long time. What do you do when the stakes are so high that you can't pull a U-turn? You've gone too far. You're boxed in, and so you're just forced to sit there and wait. How do you respond when the situation is much more difficult? Well, in the book of James, we read about patience, perseverance, endurance, in many different sections. James doesn't wait until chapter 5 to bring it up. He's talked about it in several of these chapters. If patience really is a virtue, James would say it's because of what it does to us. According to James, perseverance produces maturity. He says this in chapter 1. Perseverance makes us complete. And perseverance also comes with a blessing. In James chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Patience is one of the biggest themes that comes through this book, and every time that James brings it up, he ties it to a bigger purpose. He doesn't just talk about waiting for the sake of waiting. He talks about why perseverance is worth it, why it will bring about dividends later. Blessings will come, justice will come, the Lord Jesus will come, and we will discover that the wait was actually worth it. Perseverance is a big part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and we run into this theme once again in chapter 5. Now, if we start in verse 7 of chapter 5, we see a very simple sentence. Be patient, then, my brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. And if we stop there, we really wouldn't know what we're being patient for and why we would need to be patient. So we need to back up a little bit to what Pastor Brad was speaking on last week as he spoke in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. We have to remind ourselves of the context. That section was directed at rich people. How do we know that James was addressing rich people in James chapter 5? Well, because in verse 1 he says, now listen up, rich people. That's pretty easy to understand. And then James delivers a very, very direct message. He warns the rich about their hoarding and their defrauding and their self-indulgence. And he says to the rich, if you really knew what was coming to you, you would be weeping and wailing instead of continuing on with your actions. But then there's this transition into verse 7. He goes from accusing the rich and indicting them for all of their actions accusing them of murdering innocent people to then a very different tone, kind of a soft, calm, patient tone when he says, be patient then. So why the sudden change? How does he go from what seems like a demonstrative speech to the rich to all of a sudden saying, be patient? Hey, be patient. Well, from what we can tell, James is now speaking to a new audience. 
He speaks of brothers and sisters. He was speaking to the rich, and now he seems to be directing his statements specifically to those in the church. And based on the context, there seems to be a link between the actions of the rich and now the response of these new people that he is talking to. It seems logical that the people who James is speaking to have been hurt and treated unjustly by the rich people that he has just spoken to. And so James provides his new audience with a word. He tells them to be patient. But let's remember that the context behind this command is to be patient in a very difficult situation. James is writing to people who are suffering. They are being taken advantage of. They are being mistreated. And what James tells them to do is to wait and to be patient. Now, being patient is not easy to do. But I do find that it's easier to be patient when I have a bit of an idea of how long I'll be waiting for. If the anticipated wait time meets up with, with my expectation and my willingness to say, okay, this is worth it, I will wait for it, then it just it helps me so much more. And I don't think I'm the only one, right? Because kind of we, we've developed this expectation in our world that, that if we are required to wait, then we're going to get some sort of information on how long we need to demonstrate self-control. I mean, holding on the phone is much more toler- tolerable when I hear that automated voice said, you are number three on the list. I think, well, this is great. If 10 minutes later is gone and I'm still number three, that's a different story. But most of automated systems will tell you how long your wait is nowadays. Dealing with a medicinal side effect is much more manageable when we know how long that's going to last for. Missing a loved one is far easier when there is an understanding established between the two of you of when you're going to see each other next. But waiting without any sort of expectation for how long the wait will be is not only frustrating, it's discouraging. It can cause us to lose whatever patience we had and to eventually just give up. How long do you wait at an empty intersection before deciding to drive through the red light? How many minutes, maybe seconds, does it take you to think to yourself, this light must be broken? When there's no expectation for how long you'll be waiting, the desire to persevere becomes even more difficult. But let's forget traffic lights for a minute, because James is really not addressing this issue here. What does it feel like when you're waiting for a relationship to be restored? Or your physical pain to go away? Or your child's behavior to improve? When James tells us to be patient in verse 7, he doesn't tell us how long we'll have to wait for, but he does tell us what we're waiting for. He says, be patient then until the Lord's coming. He gives us an expected event instead of an expected time. And to help us, he gives us a metaphor, a farming metaphor, which all of us are so familiar with nowadays, right? He says, think about it this way. A farmer will wait patiently for the rain to come and water the land. And he waits patiently for the crops to then grow to provide him a harvest. Now, when you think about a farmer here, this farmer does not have a clear timeline either. He does not know what day it's going to rain, for how long it's going to rain. He also does not know when the harvest is going to be ready. And yet, in James' perspective, this farmer understands that he needs to be patient. He needs to wait it through. The anticipated harvest is worth the wait for him. 
James tells us that you and I should respond like the farmer on a hot day in the middle of a drought with no crop in sight. You too, be patient and stand firm. And just like he does the first time, James repeats his message again. But this time, he does give us a timeline. There's an, expl- there's an expectation and an explanation for how long we'll be waiting for. He writes, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So which one's more difficult? Waiting with no timeline or waiting with an unclear timeline? Hey, James, how long do we need to wait for? Well, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, well, James, when will the Lord arrive? Oh, soon. His coming is near. Is it not ironic that James points to the second coming as motivation for us to be patient? Now, granted, James is not writing this to us. He's writing this to people who actually lived in the same century as Jesus Christ. This was long before the expression, slower than the second coming, had been used. But for us, it's easy to think that we've been waiting for a really long time already. It's easy to think that comparing a situation in our life to the arrival of the Lord Jesus is actually reason to be impatient, not reason to be patient. But just because the Lord's coming has not happened yet does not mean that it will not happen soon. Listen to what commentator Douglas Moo explains in his commentary. He says, James believed that the Lord's return could happen quite quickly, but it didn't have to. Like Jesus, the earliest disciples didn't know the day or the hour, but the mentality is still the same. Be patient, establish your hearts, and stand firm. That is the message that James delivers. But in verse 9, James seems to kind of shift gears once again. He heads to a new course. In this transition, it feels a little bit odd. But resisting the temptation to grumble against others is certainly an act of perseverance. Patient people act differently than impatient people, which seems to be the reason why James moves from the large topic of patience to then a specific instruction to refrain from grumbling against one another. Now, the word grumble, the origin of that word means to mourn, or excuse me, not to mourn, but to moan or to sigh. This is the sound of impatience. (sighs) Have you ever noticed yourself doing that? (laughs) Around children, maybe? The sound of impatience. It's the visual reminder of what many of us find ourselves doing when we are waiting in a long, long line. James says that behaving this way puts us in the position of being judged. Behaving where we are moaning and groaning and grumbling and complaining to one another puts us in the position of being judged. And then he points again to Jesus, the imminent coming of Jesus. He says, the arrival of the Lord, he's here. He's standing at the doors. He may open these doors at any time. His coming is near. And so James's point, if we had to narrow it down very succinctly, in these first three verses, seven, eight, and nine, he says this, be patient. Be patient because God's timing is worth the wait. 
Even if you're experiencing injustice, even if you've endured hardships for as long as you can remember, even if there's no end in sight, God's timing is worth the wait. So be patient. Keep waiting and stand firm. And once James makes this point, he points to other people as models of patience and perseverance. This is what he says in verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, ten, he points to the prophets. He says, consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. These are examples of patience in the face of suffering. And then in verse 11, he points to Job. Job is a man who endured intense pain and suffering, and yet he persevered through all of it. Through it all, Job did not sin. He lost his livestock, his workers, his children, and his health pretty much simultaneously. Outside of Jesus, it's tough to find any example of perseverance better than Job. And when you think of Job's story, Job is an individual who was given no timeline. There was no expectation for how long he was to wait. There was no clarity about why these things had happened to him. He had no idea if the questions that he was asking and the agony he was experiencing, would he'd get a response from God about those things. Instead, he got things that were worse. His helpless friends surrounded him for days, and they tried to convince him of his wrongdoing, and then they urged him to give up. Job's story was not the, only the ultimate test of faith, it was the ultimate test of perseverance. But Job persevered by clinging to what he knew what was true and by waiting with persistence. He clung on to this belief that God was good. And then he lived out the very words that James gives us in verse 8. He was patient and he stood firm. And that made all the difference. Not everything is worth waiting for, but God's timing is worth the wait. Most people I know have had times in their lives when they felt like they could relate to Job. Not many of us have faced the amount of hardships that Job has endured and all at the same time, but some of us have experienced parts of it. How comforting it is to know that he went through tremendous suffering and he made it. How encouraging it is to read his story and to discover that one person's perseverance can make such a lasting impact on the world. We're still reading Job's story. How many years later? And Job's perseverance just didn't help other people. His patience helped himself. His perseverance gave him the chance to experience God in a way that he had never experienced before. And because of that, I think Job would tell each and every one of us that his waiting was worth it. Now, some of you are in the midst of suffering right now. You might be grieving. You might feel cheated. You might be discouraged. You might feel like giving up. And if you feel this way, you're not alone. You're far from alone because it's tough to find too many characters in the Bible who did not suffer hardships. In fact, Jesus, who suffered the most of all, he promised his closest followers that they should expect times of trouble. 
The expectation is that trials and trouble are ahead. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So, what will we do when we're in the midst of trouble? We'll be patient because God's timing is worth the wait. We'll be patient because the overcomer, the Lord Jesus himself, is coming soon. And his justice will completely eradicate our trouble. But in the meantime, we will wait and we will stand firm. Before I finish, I want to suggest a couple of applications for you from this text. I want you to consider one question and then I want to add one thing to your to-do list. One question for yourself to consider and one thing to add to your to-do list. Here's the question. What do you need to persevere? What do you need to persevere? Is it a feeling you need to experience? Is it a tangible thing that someone can provide for you? What do you require in order to stand firm when you're tempted to complain, to bicker, to compare, or to give up? What do you need? What do you need to persevere? Do you know the answer to this? Does your spouse know? Does your pastor know? What about your friend or your mom or your dad? What do you need to persevere? Now, I can't answer this question for you. Only you can answer it for yourself. But I can offer you my own answer. I feel like I've been learning this a little bit just recently. When I face difficulties, I feel discouraged. Not a big surprise, I suppose. Neither is this statement. I find that encouragement is the best remedy for discouragement. So in order for me to keep going, in order for me to feel like I can be patient and that I can persevere and that I can stay the course, I need to feel encouraged. And I can't help but think that many of us could use an extra dose of encouragement from one another, especially as we're going through tough times. So here's your assignment for the week. Encourage someone. It may not be what each person needs, but I'm sure that many of us could use it. Encourage someone. Let one person know that you care about what they're going through. Just one. Let one person know that you care about what they're going through. Help one person know that you are proud of them for persevering. Tell them that you're proud of them for continuing onward, even though it's tough. Remind one person that God's timing is worth the wait. Just one time. So the question to ask yourself is, what do I need to persevere? What do I need to persevere? And then your assignment is to encourage one person, just one person, to keep going. Because in this world, we will have trouble. But take heart, church. Jesus has overcome the world. And so in the meantime, we will be patient and we will stand firm. Let's pray.